2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away.
2: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 29 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday the 21st of August. First, I'll be talking to Chris Ballas, who runs Australian red meat company Provenir, which has been granted a licence by the Victorian Food Safety Authority, PrimeSafe, to operate a vehicle-based abattoir, a first for Victoria. And I'll be talking to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment and wages figures. But now, let's talk to Chris Ballas. Chris, uh, you have just received a licence by the Victorian Food Safety Authority, CrimeSafe. Is that
1: right? Yes. So, on the 1st of July um, of this year, PrimeSafe, the food regulator of Victoria, came out and conducted an inspection on our mobile abattoir, which has been operating for the last year in New South Wales. Uh, But we've been really very keen to get operating in our home state of Victoria. And the process of that has been quite long. So in the first place, we had to change the laws, which is uh, no small feat, as most people would know. And we did that on the 24th of October 2019. The legislation finally passed through the upper house of the Victorian Parliament and that basically added two words to the uh, Meat Industry Act under the definition of an abattoir, put and vehicle. And they were the only two words that were actually stopping us from operating in Victoria. And so once that came into legislation and was approved, it went through royal assent and there's all these long-winded government uh, processes And then we needed the uh, regulator to actually create a licence. So red tape is well and truly alive in Victoria and we've waited our way through that. So in 1st of July, they came in, they inspected the unit, as I said. And then on Tuesday this week, for the first time in Victoria, we processed cattle on the farm in which they were born and raised and produce some of the, the best quality meat in Australia, and that was done on my farm, Sage Farm.
2: The, the abattoir is actually operating from a van, is that
1: right? A semi-trailer would semi-trailer. be... Uh, um, okay. So okay. It's, it's pretty much the largest truck that you can put on the road, and it's, it's wider than a normal truck, so it's three metres wide as opposed to 2.5. And on the inside of that truck is a fully operational, compliant um, abattoir.
2: Right. I mean, I, I have worked in abattoirs and I know they've been consolidating of late and, and it means there are just fewer places. So it means uh, you, you actually need to transport these animals over long distances. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So um, if we sort of take a step back and look at the broader industry, the the abattoir and, and meat processing in general, has gone through a you know, generation, almost a generation and a half of consolidation. So generally what has happened is that the meat regulations have increased. They've become more and more stricter. Things such as the kangaroo export and you know, horse meat export scandals of the 1990s meant that the industry wasn't operating the way that it should or a very small proportion were doing the wrong thing. And that increase in regulation has really meant that the small operators have basically been forced out of the business. Now, where were the small operators? They were generally in regional Australia, close to the point of production of the animals. And what has happened is that those that were closer to the CBDs in around Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, because uh, they had shorter transportation costs from the point of slaughter to the point of consumption, because that's the bid that they pay for, all of the abattoirs in and around the edges of the large CBDs, actually did very well, and the ones in regional parts of Australia struggled with the regulatory and transportation costs. So they all closed down, and what that's meant is that the animals actually have to be transported a lot further than what they did a generation or or so ago. So, again, that impacts on the quality of meat, and that's where our, our little business model puts that all on its head and we actually go to where the animals are.
2: And so basically you eliminate the stress associated with uh, live transport to a fixed abattoir.
1: Absolutely. And, and the the example that we had on my farm this week was, was pretty much everything that I had hoped for. So we had the cattle that were selected for processing and they were in the paddock right next to the rest of their herd. They were very calm. They were not under any stress We walked them up the the ramp into the abattoir and 30 seconds later, the last rice had been administered and we were processing the animal. And, you know, that had been my goal as a farmer and a food producer is to give the animals the best life possible and now I'm able to give them the best death possible. And the reality is that we eat animals and I'm a food producer as a beef farmer and for me that that sort of completes the circle of stewardship that I have for the animals that I raise.
2: Okay and you would be the first to be operating this in Victoria wouldn't you?
1: In Victoria yep yep that's the advantages of being the CEO of the company as well.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right okay okay and of course you'd been operating this in New South Wales what was the impact like over there?
1: Look, the, the farmers that we worked with up there a lot different to Victorian farmers just in the scale that they have. So we've been operating just over the border in, in between sort of Wogga, Canberra and Albury. And all of these guys, you know, have farms that are in the thousands of hectares, so much larger than the average farm in Victoria. And they produce more cattle than what we could possibly um, process in a year. But they still wanted to work with us because A, we were doing something sort of that they held close to their hearts as being able to market their beef directly to the consumer. And Provenir enables that. So every time you, you get you buy some Provenir meat through the QR code, you can see exactly which farm it comes from, what is the breed, all provenance and traceability. But for the farmers, it was what I was talking about, that connection and closure of the stewardship with regards to the animals. So they came in, they saw the animals after they had processed them. Um, they saw that they brought them into the yards and it wasn't just disappearing on the back of a truck. It was that completion of the farming process.
2: And you are now looking for uh, expressions of interest from Victorian grass, uh, grass-fed cattle farmers.
1: Yeah, so the, the way that it works in um, Victoria is that we get permission per local government authority, so the local shires and councils, and we're very interested. We've actually got quite a full book already of farmers that are, are super keen to work with us in, in the processing of their cattle. But definitely recommend if anyone is a high-welfare farmer, produces grass-fed and finished cattle, and is really interested in closing the loop from the farming perspective, to get onto our website, which is provenir.com.au. There's a page there for expressions of interest from the farmers. And once they do that, we make contact with them, uh, the onboarding process takes quite a while. Um, it's anywhere between four to eight weeks. We need to come out to the farm. We need to see that the yards and the infrastructure is correct. Um, we check out the cattle, make sure that it um, hits the expectations that our customers and chefs have. And then once we've ticked all those boxes, we welcome them into the provenir family.
2: I'd imagine there's been a lot of consumer support for on-farm processed meat these days. That be, would that be right?
1: Yeah, look, there's a growing awareness about how meat is produced, um, and that's not only coming from our own marketing and traceability and explanation, but um, more broadly the, the discussions with um, vegans and climate impact of cattle and, you know, export issues and so forth. I think the consumer awareness about where meat comes from is increasing, and, and you know, the, the days of having a happy cow in a paddock and then you know magically it turns into a perfect cup of scotch fillet on your plate the, the the significant processing that happens in the middle um people are starting to understand that and you know very topical at the moment is COVID and food security and, you know, where do we get our food from and, you know, is our nutrition good enough to provide resilience against, you know, things like COVID, uh, the coronavirus and so forth. So we've had a lot of demand and interest about, okay, on-farm processing, no stress to the animals. I know exactly which farm it comes from. In fact, I know which species of cow it comes from. You know, whether it be Hereford or Shorthorn or Murray Gray or whatever it is. And and that's been really strong demand for us, which is really pleasing and sort of validates the business model.
2: And you're providing that all on the QR codes, aren't you? All those details.
1: Yeah, the, the QR code's really cool. And that, that's something that we're going to put a lot of marketing behind in the next couple of months. So um, every time they purchase a Retail Ready pack of meat, it comes with a little QR code on it. And on any smartphone just on the camera, if you put that over the QR code, it links back to our web-based, uh, our file based um, system, which t- will tell exactly what the cut of meat is that they've just purchased, which, you know, they can read the label. That's not anything particularly interesting. But it actually gives some cooking tips in there as well. So, wow. you know, how quickly do you, you know, sear an eye, it for? you know, what are some ideas that you can do with a bowl of roast? And we'll add to that with more video content and recipes on there. The next tab across says exactly which farm it comes from. But beyond just saying, you know, the name of the farm, it introduced the farmers. So um, at the moment, we're processing Mulgoa Angus beef with Bill and Joy, who have been farmers for you know well over 30 years. We talk about their gorgeous daughter, Polly, who's a part of the farm. She's a four-year-old that's uh, <laughs> amazing, gets out there. We talk about the dog, you know, how much land is on there, some of the challenges that they've had with drought and fire and so forth, and really paint the picture for the the consumers in the city to know exactly where that um, food comes from. And that's a big thing for us as well, is to connect farmer and consumer and know where that food is coming from.
2: Well, that's quite extraordinary, Chris. And congratulations again, uh, because we last spoke, that was in May last year, and you've come along really well. And uh, looking forward to seeing further work of Provenir. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Leon. Thank you. Great for your support. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, we had some uh, pretty dire figures for the economy this week. We had wages rising just 0.2% in the June quarter, uh, up just 1.8% over the past year, and that's uh, the lowest result in um, 27 years of the wages price index. And we had unemployment edging uh, up 7.5%, and we now have, uh, what, 2.5 million Australians... Uh, either unemployed or underemployed. Uh, What's your view about the figures?
0: Yeah, it was a pretty nasty um, set of figures, although I I would acknowledge that the labour market has actually improved over the past couple of months. While the situation is bad right now, it's certainly much better than it was back in May. Um, So at least we're heading in the right direction. But the the wage figures were certainly concerning. We saw the, the lowest wage figures going back to at least 1997, which is when the index began. But realistically, we're looking at the, the lowest wage growth in at least half a century. And that 1.8% annual rate is probably the highest we're going to see for some time. It's almost certainly going to decline further over the remainder of this year and into next. With regards to the, the labour force figure, look, it was a positive that employment increased by 115%. But the fact that there are 2.5 million Australians considered underutilised, with 1 million considered unemployed, means that we still have a long way to go in this recovery. This is not something that we're going to overcome quickly.
2: Officially, the rate increased 7.5%, but what happens if we treat everyone who lost their jobs as becoming unemployed, and then the actual unemployment rate? And you know, people dropping out of looking for work and people on JobKeeper. What what would it be? What would the figure be?
0: So measuring unemployment has been really difficult throughout this crisis, and the ABS has had some real issues measuring that accurately. There's been a big disconnect between those receiving unemployment benefits and those who statistically recorded as being unemployed. If we include everyone who has lost their jobs throughout the crisis as becoming unemployed, then the unemployment rate is actually around 9%. Now, that's obviously worse than the 7.5% official unemployment rate, but it's important to know that the unemployment rate is actually coming down when we do that. So a couple of months ago, the unemployment rate would have been up at around 11%. Now it's trending downwards to, to 9% because we are seeing those reasonably strong employment gains, 115,000 in July, 343,000 over the past two months. But as the recovery has continued and as the economy has opened up, Uh, more of these people who've lost their jobs early in the crisis are beginning to look for work. And when they start searching for work, uh, they are considered to have re-entered the workforce and then they become considered unemployed. So that's why we're seeing the official rate increase, even though we are seeing also strong employment gains at the same time.
2: The underemployment rates are 11.2%. I mean, that's just extraordinary.
0: Yeah, and it's important we don't forget about these people. Um, All the headlines are focused on the 1 million Australians who are unemployed, and understandably so. We're concerned about those people. But part of the recovery is going to be getting that underemployment figured down. 11.2% at the moment, it was sort of in the mid 8s before the crisis. And And we do need to see progress in that number going forward. It's not just going to be enough that we're creating jobs that gets the unemployment rate down. We also need to be ensuring that people who do have jobs are getting the hours they need so that they can keep the economy ticking over.
2: Okay, and uh, the matter is complicated, of course, by the uh, second wave in Victoria. That would be delaying any return back for the economy, would it?
0: Yeah, that's right. It's important to note that these July figures provide a snapshot of labor market conditions early in July. Um, So that's not capturing the impact of of Stage 3, certainly not capturing the impact of of Stage 4. And we're going to to see that impact when the August data is released and the September data is released over the next couple of months. The Victorian landmark was actually an overperformer in the the July data, so it was doing quite well before that second wave uh, reached us. The unemployment rate in Victoria was 6.8% versus 7.5% for Australia as a whole, but that's obviously going to change Come next month. I expect there will be a sharp divergence between the performance of the Victorian labour market and the rest of the country. The rest of the country should continue to uh, improve. That recovery will continue. But Victoria, there's little hope of economic recovery until those restrictions are lifted. Um, that certainly won't be before mid-September. And more than likely, we are going to see some restrictions in Victoria through to the end of the year.
2: And that would, of course, impact on the overall figure coming out of unemployment in uh, August and September and further on,
0: wouldn't it? Absolutely. It's going to offset a lot of the recovery that we do see in other regions. Employment should increase in New South Wales, Queensland, all the other states, um, but Victoria is going to go backwards and the two are going to offset one another. And that's ultimately going to lead to a much slower economic recovery than we expected before Victoria got that second wave.
2: There was other cause for concern during the week. We had weekly payroll data. They suggested the recovery had stalled. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes, yeah, so that data
0: came out on Tuesday. And that's really important because it provides a more timely update on labour market conditions than the labour force survey. And what that was telling us was that the employment recovery had stalled throughout. July. And the main reason for that was because of Victoria. Victorian payrolls are 6.7% below where they were before the crisis, but the rest of the country is about 3.7%. So there's quite a big difference there, and that's a difference that is likely to grow throughout August and September. Um, If you look at the rest of Australia in isolation, payrolls there have continued to improve uh, throughout July. So the fact that they've stalled at the national level is mainly being driven by Victorian second wave and, and the resulting uh, lockdowns.
2: With with regard to the wages, I was very struck that the public sector actually performed better. They were up 0.6% uh, compared to the private sector, which was only up 0.1%, which would suggest that the public sector is actually driving a lot of the growth in wages, which is very good. Yeah, that's
0: right. And that is something that we do tend to see um, during periods of economic weakness. The public sector is more insulated from the market forces um, that occur during a recession. And so wage growth in that that sector does tend to be less volatile. And that can be quite beneficial in a situation where you do see wages decline or be or be very weak across the broader economy. I would expect that uh, wage growth in the public sector will continue to outpace uh, private sector wage gains uh, throughout this crisis, um, however long it lasts, whether it be a year or or two or three, because that's precisely what we saw in the the global financial crisis. And it's also what wage measures uh, showed during our last recession in the early 90s.
2: Right. I mean, historically, there's always been a strong relationship between wage growth and measures of unemployment. Do you see that continuing or will that be changing with COVID-19?
0: I, well, I anticipate that the strong relationship will probably break down in the near term just because of the amount of disruptions and distortions in the labour market at the moment due to, whether it be economic restrictions, um, government policies such as job keeper and job seeker and the like. But long term, you'd expect that relationship to return in, in some form. And what that indicates, if the uh, underutilization rate remains high, and currently it's almost at 19%, which is well above where it was before the crisis, then we would expect wage growth to soften considerably from here. An underutilization rate of around 19% is actually consist- consistent with flat annual wage growth. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how wage growth develops if the underutilisation rate remains elevated over the next year or two.
2: Uh, recessions usually take years to recover from, but uh, this is no ordinary recession. The COVID-19 crisis is going to leave a huge shadow across the Australian economy. Yeah, that's
0: right. Um, Obviously, the the COVID-19 crisis is different in in many respects from a previous recession, but we can look to those previous episodes for some insight into how an economy might uh, evolve over the years. Now, it it took four years for employment to return to uh, its pre-recession levels in the early 1990s. And it took about two years for a return to previous levels in the early 1980s recession. And so that really does indicate that these recessionary events leave a a lingering shadow upon the economy and it can take a number of years to recover. Now, the unique nature of the the COVID-19 crisis does suggest things could be a little bit different. Um, We saw a much larger drop in employment early in this crisis compared with previous recessions. In a normal recession, it can often take a year or two for employment to, to reach its low point before it begins to improve. That hasn't been the case in COVID-19. We, we saw that big drop uh, very early in the crisis and we're already beginning to, to see that recovery. But the recovery is likely to, to slow down going forward, in large part because the jobs that have been gained over the past two months have reflected the opening up of the economy. They were the easy gains to get. But getting back to where we were before the crisis, Uh, from this point in July, is going to be more difficult. And it's quite possible, quite plausible that it does take a couple of years to get there at the very least. Certainly, the Reserve Bank expects that the labour market conditions are going to be pretty weak over the next couple of years, with the unemployment rate uh, remaining at about 7% through to the end of of 2022. And if that is the case, then obviously employment growth is not going to be particularly strong over the next couple of years.
2: So, what you're saying is that any forward momentum will be slowing down as well? I think so.
0: Like I said, um, the, the gains we've seen over the past couple of months that's about 340,000 um, jobs created is likely to, to slow down going forward. Those jobs mainly reflected the lifting of restrictions, um, but most economies are now operating reasonably normal, with the exception of Victoria. And so the gains that we have going forward are largely going to reflect economic conditions and how much damage has been done by COVID-19 for the overall economy and and businesses across the country. Um, So do expect employment gains to uh, soften over the remainder of this year. Um, Don't expect those, those big gains that we've seen in the past couple of months to continue.
2: Okay, well, Callum, those are sobering thoughts and uh, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Liam. So what's happening in the news? Well, Victorian businesses face a surge of workers' compensation claims as a result of the second wave of COVID-19 infections across the state and many are likely to be slugged with higher WorkSafe premiums in the coming year. New South Wales businesses will also be hit after the New South Wales government passed laws in the early days of the pandemic that places the responsibility on the employer to disprove an employee's claims that they contracted COVID-19 while on the job. State workers' compensation schemes are already under serious pressure from the sharp sell-down in investment markets, while the slowing economy is expected to hit the collection of business premiums. Workers' compensation authorities have put employers on notice to minimise the spread of coronavirus. This includes stopping non-essential work activities that involve close personal contact, as well as introducing controls, including barriers, to reduce direct contact with workers and customers. It also involves implementing controls to reduce environmental exposure, including inspecting and reviewing air conditioning and ventilation systems if an employee of a business dies as a result of contracting COVID-19 at the workplace their family may sue the employer if a case of negligence is established. Victorian government data shows that more than 1,665 cases of COVID-19 have been linked to outbreaks in workplace settings. However, there are thousands of cases of COVID-19 in Victoria where the source of the infection is unknown. Abattoirs and warehouses remain the workplace hotspots when it comes to outbreaks, accounting for 990 cases between them, according to Victorian state government data. WorkSafe Victoria has so far accepted 75 claims from workers who had contracted COVID-19, as well as another 98 claims related to COVID-19 mental health and physical injury. While the issue for now is largely contained to Victoria, several other states have seen a rising work cover claims by employees who were infected with the virus while on the job. And the COVID-19 pandemic has boosted home entertainment subscription services in Australia, according to new research from emerging technology analyst firm Telsite. Australians added 5.6 million new subscriptions to the end of June 2020, an increase of 18% from a year ago. This growth was across streaming video on demand, or SVOD, streaming music and games-related subscription services. The total number of subscriptions reached almost 37 million and is forecast to grow to 58 million by 2024. The Telsite Australian Entertainment Subscription Study 2020 found SVOD and streaming music remained the top two largest categories, with 16 million and 12 million subscriptions respectively. All of the major players saw a significant increase in in subscribers. Netflix has grown its local subscriber base to 5.4 million people, a jump of almost half a million in the past year. Local rival Stan has hit 2.1 million members, up up a similarly robust 400,000 subscribers for the year. Amazon Prime Video has 1.7 million, and Disney Plus has accumulated 1.1 million payers since its launch last year. And more than 400 account holders withdrawing retirement savings through the government superannuation early access scheme are being investigated by the Australian Taxation Office. The ATO said the pilot reviews will consider whether individuals met rules for the expected $42 billion scheme, which has been dogged by allegations of misuse and even involvement by criminal organizations. And four in ten Australians dipping into their retirement savings under the second stage of the government's super withdrawal scheme had experienced no drop in income during the pandemic. Recipients typically spent an extra $3,618 during the first night after receiving the lump sum, compared with the same people's average spending on a normal fortnight before the super withdrawal, analysis of banking data shows. Nearly two-thirds, or 64%, of the additional purchases were on non-essentials, including fashion, furniture, restaurants, alcohol and gambling. On average, 12% of increased spending in the two weeks after the super withdrawal was allocated to debt repayments. Analytics firm Alphabeta, a part of Accenture, and credit bureau Illion, analysed the depersonalised banking data of more than 10,000 Australians who withdrew superannuation during the second tranche of the scheme which commenced on July 1st. An AMP says it's willing to release the investigation report undertaken by Andrew Burns QC into sexual harassment allegations against new AMP capital boss Bo Pahari. But superannuation funds say Pahari's position is increasingly untenable after detailed sexual harassment complaint lodged against him were made public, and former AMP Capital executive Julius Sluckowski, who left the company in 2018, has hit out at AMP over persistent and misleading efforts to downplay sexual harassment that she reported in a seven-page complaint to the company three years ago. As a result of the investigation into the conduct of her then-manager, Pahari, he was financially penalised as much as $500,000, while AMP settled the claim with Miss Slukowski. Mr Pahari was controversially promoted this year to run AMP Capital. In a separate incident early this month, AMP Australia boss Alex Wade suddenly left the group due to inappropriate conduct, including sending lewd photos to a female employee. Miss Slukowski is represented by Morris Blackburn locally and Golombok, Eisman, Asel Bell and Pesco in New York. The latter firm represented former anchor Gretchen Carlson in a suit against Fox News boss Roger Ailes. AMP shares have fallen as concerns grew within the investment community about cultural issues as a wealth manager which has in recent months been hit by successive scandals. I can't see how his position as CEO is tenable, Australian Council of Superannuation Investors Chief Executive Louise Davidson said. It concerns me particularly that the company has tried to downplay the seriousness of the sexual harassment allegations. Val Kolesnikov. Head of research for proxy advisory firm ISS said A.M.P. shareholders were concerned about further erosion of company value. Mr. Kalistnikov said cutting bonuses for allegations of this nature was insufficient. Axie represents 38 major super funds, which collectively manage about two trillion dollars of investments on environmental, social, and governance issues. The company has consistently defended Mr. Bahari's promotion, claiming his conduct was a lower-level breach. The penalty was appropriate, and Mr. Bahari has shown remorse. However, Pahari has appointed himself as chairman of the company's inclusion and diversity council as the company refused to discuss whether it made persistent and misleading efforts to downplay the executive's alleged sexual harassment. Mr. Pahari told staff members he would chair the council, which is set up to help the business become an ultimate destination for talent. In an all-staff email, Mr. Pahari said the council would help build an inclusive culture that embraces the diversity of our workforce and that he would co-chair the role with AMP Capital senior employee Julie Tanner. And China has launched an anti-dumping investigation into Australian wine exports as trade tensions between Beijing and Canberra continue to escalate. China is investigating whether Australia is dumping wine at low prices. Wine is the third Australian industry to be hit by China this year with beef and barley facing trade sanctions. China's government has also warned both tourists and students not to travel to Australia as the relationship between the two countries sours. The move has already sent tremors through the industry. Last year, Australian wine exports to China were valued at $1.25 billion, more than a third of the whole wine export market. And BHP Group will broaden plans to exit coal operations and review opportunities to shed ageing oil and gas assets under the new CEO Mike Henry's more urgent push to reshape the world's top miners' portfolio for a low-emissions future. The producer aims to sell... Or spin off its 80% share in the BHP Mitsui Coal Joint Venture, which owns two coking coal operations in Australia, along with exiting thermal coal mines and some oil and gas operations, the company said. Henry, installed as chief executive in January, is focusing BHP on supplying higher quality iron ore and coking coal to capture China's shift to prioritize medium raw materials for its steel sector. At the same time, he's laying the ground for a longer-term transition to favour growth in copper and nickel to meet expected rising demand from renewable energy and the electrification of transport. And the profit reporting season continues. And the pandemic continues to affect profits. But e-commerce companies are doing well out of coronavirus. Tapcore Holdings has unveiled an $870 million full-year loss after taking a $1.09 billion write-down on both its wagering and medium business and its gaming service unit. Crown Resorts reported a financial year net attributable profit of $81.9 million, down from $402.9 million a year ago. Australia's largest steel company Blue Scope's net profit after tax plunged by 91% to $96.5 million for 2019-20 as steel margins in the United States slumped because industries such as car-making, cut-back production. Fletcher Building has reported a New Zealand $196 million loss for the 2020 financial year. The listed funerals provider InvoCare reported a 22.7% decline in operating EBITDA to $48.6 million because of the cost of continuing to do business under social distancing restrictions. Australia's largest Owner and manager of office buildings, Dexas, reported net profit of $983 million for the FY20 year, down by 23.3% on 2019. Rare earth producer Linus profit slumped to a full year loss of $19.39 million, down from an $83 million profit last year after being hit by COVID-19, weak commodity prices and soft demand in the automotive industry. Viva Energy's net profit, excluding one-time items, slid 32.6% to $34.3 million in the June half compared with the same half last year, but refining slumped into the red to the tune of $49.4 million. Global construction development giant Lendlease has plunged to a $310 million annual net loss as it absorbed cost tied to the exit of its engineering business and the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Cochlear's net profit became a statutory net loss of $238.3 million, a fall of 186%. BHP reported a US $9.06 billion underlying profit, which was below the US $9.418 billion underlying profit expected by analysts' consensus compiled by VUMA. Westpac's cash earnings rose to $1.32 billion for the three months ended June 30, compared to a quarterly average in the first half of $497 million due to the lower impairment charges. The earnings result was up 19% when notable items such as customer refunds and costs linked to legal action by financial crimes regulator Ostrack were taken into account. Spirit Telecom widened its net loss after tax to $1.5 million from a $0.9 million loss a year ago. Monadelphus reported a 28% drop in annual profit to $36.5 million. Cash profits at Bendigo and Adelaide Bank fell 27.4% to $301 million for the year, while net profit fell 48.8% to $192.8 million. The bank maintained its COVID-19 provisions made in the first half of $127.7 million, which weighed heavily on the result. Point-of-sale business Tyro Payments has more than doubled its net loss to $38 million on revenue of up 11% to $210.6 million. Argo Investments financial year two thousand twenty profit fell thirty one point eight per cent to one hundred ninety nine point five million income from operating activities declined to two hundred twenty five point two million from three hundred fifteen point two million last year beach energy's underlying net profit was down eighteen per cent to four hundred sixty one million sims reported a net loss of two hundred sixty five point three million from one hundred fifty two point six million a year ago mount gibson's net profit after tax slid thirty seven per cent to eighty four point two million for the year Money 3's profit fell 14.7% to $24.2 million, with the company incurring a $10.1 million non-cash economic outlook provision. Estia Health recorded a full-year net loss of $116.9 million after asset values were reduced by $144.6 million, including a $136.1 million cut to goodwill. Virtus Health has taken a $14.6 million profit hit from COVID-19 restrictions, with the company reporting a profit for the financial year of less than $500,000. Coles' net profit from continuing operations rose 7.1% to $951 million in 2020, the first profit growth in four years as strong food sales during the pandemic offset COVID-19 costs and losses in the convenience business as fuel sales fell. Merlis Australia's net profit rose by 19.4%, $8.9 million, although government trading restrictions placed on its hotels reduced revenue by $7.2 million. JB Hi-Fi's net profit soared 21% to $302.3 million in the 12 months ending June, buoyed by demands for laptops, monitors and appliances from consumers forced to work, learn and dine from home during the coronavirus pandemic. Underlying net profit growth before one off costs was even stronger, rising 33.2% to $332.7 million, beating consensus forecasts around $328 million, as strong sales growth in the June half more than offset increased operating costs. Gold miner Oz Minerals says the rising gold price held its half year net profit soar 82% on the prior corresponding period half to $80 million. Kogan.com's net profits soared 55.9%, $26.8 million in the year ended June, as the online retailer reaped the benefit of a consumer shift to e-commerce during the pandemic. Earnings before interest, tax depreciation and amortization rose 54.5% to $46.5 million, as strong sales offset increased investment in marketing and customer acquisition. Digital gift card business EML Payments reported its FY 2020 net profit after tax and amortisation grew 17% to $24 million. Silver Lake Resources reported a 3,852% increase in statutory net profit after a tax of $256.9 million, but that included a tax benefit of $123.7 million arising from the recognition of a prior year tax losses on its balance sheet. Red Cape Hotel Group's profit rose to $11.2 million from a $4.9 million loss in the 2019 financial year. NRW Holdings reported a full-year profit of $73.7 million, Funds platform NetWealth has posted a net profit of $43.7 million for FY2020 versus 30, $34.3 million in FY2019. Hygiene product manufacturer Asalio Care has reported a 50% increase in underlying profit as it met strong demand for tissues and toilet paper at the height of the COVID-19 panic buying. Car accessory manufacturer arb Corp's profit rose 0.3% to 57.3 million. IT services business Empired, has posted a full-year net profit of 6.1 million versus a net loss of 15.9 million in the prior year. Pack Group reported full-year net profit after tax of 88.8 million from a loss of 289.6 million a year ago. And retailer McPherson says underlying profit before tax from continuing operations grew 33% to 23 million dollars. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Jaron Eisen, the founder and CEO of One Fit Stop. Jaron is an entrepreneur immersed in the health and fitness industry with a passion to leverage technology to create efficiencies and experiences. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the profit reporting season. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBiZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.